Welcome to Healthcare Upside Down with your host, Dr. Nick Vanterhaven, and brought to you by ECG Management Consultants. You can learn more about the show on the program's page at healthcarenowradio.com or on our blog at ecgmc.com hud. The U.S. spends more on healthcare per capita than any other country on the planet. So why don't we have superior outcomes? Why haven't the principles of capitalism prevailed? And why do American consumers have so much trouble accessing and paying for healthcare? Each week, Healthcare Upside Down will dive into these and other issues with ECG principal, Dr. Nick, and guest panelists as they discuss the upsides and downsides of healthcare in the U.S. and how to make the system work for everyone. And we end with your better pill to swallow, the conclusion to today's episode with insights on challenges and changes that improve healthcare. Now, here's your host, Dr. Nick. In the iconic movie Star Wars, which is now almost 45 years old, Ben Kenobi, also known as Obi-Wan Kenobi, played by Alec Guinness, is stopped by stormtroopers who are looking for two droids, R2-D2 and C-3PO, who are sat in the back of the speeder they are driving. Obi-Wan tells them, these aren't the droids you're looking for. So it is with musculoskeletal care. Musculoskeletal disorders are responsible for about 20% of healthcare spend and the number one spending for most plans year over year. What constitutes a musculoskeletal disorder? Any injury that involves muscles, nerves, tendons, joints, cartilage and spinal discs. Examples include a whole range of sprains and tears with back pain, one of the top 10 reasons people seek medical care and it's listed as the number one chronic medical problem worldwide by the WHO. And arthritis, the most common cause of disability in people over the age of 65. For many patients referred into our healthcare system with problems of pain in their hips, knees, shoulders, and other joints, the vast majority end up having a procedure on that joint that presents with the pain. Many progress to joint replacements, but that might not be the best option or choice. Studies put 40% or two in five patients being misdiagnosed. When a patient presents to a clinician with an apparent musculoskeletal problem, the diagnosis and ultimately the focus of treatment is often aimed at the body part where the pain is found. In the case of hips, we find that 70% of cases, the problem originates not in the hip, but in the back or spine, with derangement, which refers to pain caused by a disturbance in the normal resting position of the affected joint surfaces, being the cause. In other words, the natural position of your joints is changed and is causing pain. Fixing these types of problems does not require surgery and involves exercises that work to reverse the changes and reduce and eliminate the pain. Join me on the Healthcare Upside Down show as I talk with Mark Miller, the co-founder of Integrated Musculoskeletal Care. He's been a clinical practitioner for over 30 years, delivering best practices in musculoskeletal triage, healthcare, and self-care, and has been working to expand understanding and allow wider access to improved outcomes. He wants everyone to get access to the best available care for their musculoskeletal injuries and pain. Hi, Mark. Welcome to the show. Uh, thank you very much. No, I'm gl- glad to be here. So there's a better way for uh, musculoskeletal injuries. We're, I think we're all familiar with 
hip replacement, shoulder surgery, knee surgery. We hear about this. In fact, orthopedics would describe the hip replacement as one of the wonders of the world. But you don't think that that's necessarily the case. No, no. You know, when a hip replacement is necessary, it is a wonderful surgery. Uh, the problem is, is that there, there's too many of them being done. And, and oftentimes they're actually being done when it's not even the pain generator. In other words, they're replacing the wrong body part. So help us understand why that's the case. What, why would be people be taking on surgery unnecessarily? Yeah, I don't think it's, I don't think there's a place to, to lay blame in terms of people are doing something inappropriately on purpose. But if, if, if you're an individual and you're, you're not walking well, you're hurting, you're in your 60s, you're declining in your capabilities, you try some physical therapy for a couple of months, you don't get a whole lot better with range of motion and strengthening. The image says it doesn't look well, the orthopedic surgeon is being asked to perform and that's what they're gonna do, they're gonna replace the hip. But you know, a landmark paper came out, um, oh, I, I think maybe two years ago, and they looked at a consecutive case series of, of shoulders and hips and knees, where the, the diagnosis was, uh, was along the hip joint. And what they found was 71% of these patients actually had a lumbar spine problem that was the main driver uh, of the pain and the lack of function. And when that was resolved, uh, the patient no longer had hip problems. And uh, what's happening is really clinicians, whether you're talking about primary care, physical therapy, even orthopedic surgery, they don't seem to be well-versed or well-trained in the area of fully screening out the, the, the lumbar spine in the presence of a hip problem or the cervical spine in the presence of a shoulder problem. And as a result, these are slipping through. So to be clear, I mean, I, I uh, practiced orthopedics in, in my past. I will tell you that it was a miracle surgery. It was very gratifying uh, to be a surgeon uh, delivering a hip replacement because it was transformative for those patients. But it seems like the entryway is causing the problem and certainly I, as a clinician, struggle with some of the concepts that you're describing, which is I've got hip pain, but you're saying it's related to something else. What, what is going on and how, how do people understand that? It's actually, um, it's easy or, or it's hard to believe. You know, it depends on which way you want to go. But when a patient presents with hip pain, the, 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 like I say, the latest study, and, and our, our clinical data has shown this for over 20 years. We're, we're trying to fix this healthcare uh, delivery uh, problem that, that's, that surrounds musculoskeletal. But bottom line is this, the lumbar spine is the source, at least according to this last paper and according to our data, is the source of 71% of, of hip presentations. And so if, if a patient has a hip complaint, what they require from our perspective is a full lumbar screen. And if the lumbar screen ensures there's no lumbar relationship to the hip, then a full hip examination that rules out the possibility of what we call rapidly reversible derangements or green flag type conditions. They represent the next largest population of hip problems. If they're not there, then the question is, is this a remodelable hip? And that only takes 10 days of proper loading to see if the hip starts to change in terms of range of motion and function. If 10 to 14 days of proper loading occur and there's no alteration whatsoever, now this patient might be a candidate for a hip replacement and two things happen. Number one is they're getting the right surgery on the right problem. And two, you significantly increase the possibility 
that you're going to have a successful outcome. So it strikes me listening to you that if, if we've got lots of people having hips that maybe don't require them, are we seeing surgery that is being performed and is not delivering the value proposition that we've all come to expect from those kind of surgeries? Yeah, and you're, you're not only seeing this in the hip, you're seeing it in the, in the shoulders, in the elbows, and in the knees as well. And <clears throat> the rule of thumb, at least in our organization, we, we, we train primary care and, and, and concerted care clinicians to a standard, and then we quality assure them to make sure that the outcomes, regardless of geography, are consistent. And what we train them to do is fully screen the spine, fully, thoroughly screen the spine in the presence of a peripheral joint complaint. And if, if you don't do that, you run the risk of missing a spine-related issue that mimics a rotator cuff tear or a medial meniscal issue in the knee or a labral problem or an arthritic condition in the hip. So can you give us an example? Yeah, I, I'll give you a great example. So my son calls me, he was, he was only about 12 or 13 at the time, he calls me from the golf course. And uh, his golf pro uh, suggested to him that he wouldn't be able to see him for four months because he was having his rotator cuff repaired and he wouldn't be able to lift the club and he was gonna be in a lot of rehab. My son said, well, you know, my dad fixes these. Um, why, why don't you let me call him? So he called me from the golf course and I said, yeah, have him, have him pop over. So over he came, I screened his, his shoulder, set his baselines. And I could see how any clinician would look at that and say, oh yeah, there's no doubt about it. That rotator cuff is, is shredded. It's a problem. Um, but then when I screened his cervical thoracic region, within 15 minutes, he was 50% better. And within three visits, he was 95% better in playing golf again. Here's a nice example of how a cervical thoracic complaint, or it wasn't, wasn't a complaint, he didn't even realize he had an issue, actually drove what looked like a rotator cuff tear. Now, fast forward 10 years, and this gentleman was speaking to the guy that is now the current head pro at the golf course, and he's about to get a rotator cuff repair. And he says, we well, ought to go over and see Mark. And so he came over, I screened his cervical thoracic region. There was nothing there. There was no relationship. And that five minute screen assured that for me, or at least to a, within a certain percentile. But then when I examined his shoulder, even though it looked like his rotator cuff was indicted, he had a rapidly reversible, simple mechanical problem in his shoulder. And, and that, that's called derangement, actually. That's the term that's utilized. And within a couple of visits of reducing derangement, his shoulder uh, was, was working again. He was playing golf. He didn't have a problem. So where I'm going with this, Nick, is a clinician has to be trained. And, and has to be consistent at being able to screen out the, the cervical thoracic region in the presence of, of a shoulder problem. If it's not there, that's wonderful. Even though the latest study says that 44% of shoulder presentations do have a cervical thoracic relationship. Then they have to be able to rule out those rapidly reversible joint inclusions that can mimic these other problems that end up in surgery. And once those are off the table, now you're refined down to a point of, let's take a look at that tendon and see if it really is. And then is it remodelable? 10 to 14 days, days later, no. If everything fits in the orthopedic surgeon's physical exam, at that point, then we can go ahead and consider a surgery. So let's talk numbers. You've mentioned uh, somewhere of the order of 40% in the case of uh, shoulders. Right. What about the other joints? So again, I'll, I'll go back and quote this latest paper, but um, knees, I believe, is 26% coming from the lumbar spine. Hips are 71 <clears throat> foot ankle issues, 29%. And um, I think elbows are in that uh, 44% and wrists are in that sort of 
29-ish, 30-ish. Um, I can send you the paper. But uh, that's what they found. And, and our clinical findings have been very similar. Um, so uh, we can corroborate that with tens of thousands of, of patients and clinical outcomes. So let, let's put this into context and, and focus on one that's very personal to me, which is the hip joint. And the number you quoted was about 70, 75%. So in the case of people presenting with hip pain, what you're saying is fully three quarters of those individuals, the pain is not actually caused by uh, hip joint problems, but is originating in another part of the body, in this case, the spine. Is that correct? Right. So if we're, if we're going to quote Rosedale's paper, that was 71%. Uh, internal to our organization, we haven't refined the data collection down to that point, but it is an incredibly high number. And, and I'll go one step further, Nick. Let's just do this. Let's say it's 15%. Let's say it's 20%. It takes a couple of visits from a capable clinician to screen all that out. So imagine if we can decrease the number of hip replacements just by that simple number. Let's forget the 71. It's, it seems quite high and it seems a bit gaudy, but that's what the science is telling us. And that's what our clinical findings have, have shown. I would go so far as to say, even if it's 10, clinicians should be trained to screen out the, the lumbar spine thoroughly before ever considering operating on a hip or shoulder, elbow, knee, foot, ankle. So clearly based on your experience, that's not happening. Um, you know, obviously the concern here is that people are not getting the right care in, in their particular example. How do we go about changing that? It seems like the system is set up to funnel people through, uh, I guess, a pre-screen. Is it fixed at a pre-screening? Do we put something in ahead of time? Is it fixed with training? Is it fixed in the uh, primary care or even in the specialist? Where do we start with all of this? Right. So one of the, one of the things that our organization does is we work very closely with self-insured companies. They, they, they have a, an intimate desire to decrease the cost of care while keeping their workforce healthier, right? So, so they're, they're more motivated to change than some of these other payer systems. And when we go into an organization and do a historical claims data analysis, between 11 and 14% of all those patients entering the, the healthcare system for a musculoskeletal problem are receiving some type of orthopedic surgery. What we've found is, is when we combine with primary care, in other words, we create a medical home where we've got primary care that we train to triage these a, a little more properly. And then we standardize and quality assure the conservative care team. That number can drop to as low as two to 3%. Now, over time, there's going to be a market shift, and that's going to rise up again to that, that seven-ish percent. But, but what I, where I'm going with this is if, if primary care and conservative care can be trained to better screen and handle and manage musculoskeletal, then we can easily cut the number of orthopedic surgeries in half. And frankly, I think the orthopedic surgeons would be happy about it because their outcomes are going to improve significantly. Um, it's just that's not the way it is currently. Uh, even if you look at the Medicare data right now, I believe the last paper that Medicare put out on this, it's around 11% of everyone entering the system in the medic, under the Medicare umbrella ends up in some type of orthopedic surgery. It's just, it's, it's just not necessary. So I, you talk about the economics and that's important, but let's talk about the 
um, surgical impact. This is a, I mean, it, it's not major surgery as it used to be, but it's still significant surgery and comes with risks. You're essentially suggesting that we can avoid those risks altogether and have no surgery? Well, okay, no surgery is, is a push, right? Because obviously two to 3% no, Definitely I don't mean required. for everybody. I mean, no surgery for that group that doesn't oh, need it. Oh, there's no doubt about it. Um, if you look at, uh, we did a, uh, well, it's an ongoing study because we're working very closely with this Fortune 500 company, but you, you take any six years of data in the last 10 years we've been with them and the surgery rates are cut in half. And now it's not because surgery is being denied. It's because these problems are being resolved because when we follow these patients in the claims data and we, we do a match pair comparison, when they're seen in the community under the common standard processes of care, 37 or 38% of them are back into the system for the same body part, regardless of clinical outcome and regardless of whether they had surgery or not. And in our cohort, it's less than 17%. So we, we are, you can get an excellent clinical outcome. You can maintain the individual's health. You can train them to manage their own conditions. And you can basically keep them out of the invasive service world. And we have been able to show that over tens and thousands of patients. Um, and, and again, at least by half. So the answer is yes, absolutely. So uh, to be clear, I'm not suggesting no surgery at all. I think surgery has an appropriate place for, for got, the appropriate correct. patient. Right. But it's that group that are essentially uh, shouldn't be in that bucket or category that can be diverted. This is clearly new innovation that, um, you know, has just arrived because otherwise everybody would be accessing it. Well, that's right. So, I mean, if you go back in the history of this, there was a chance discovery by a, a, a clinician in New Zealand. His name was Rob McKenzie. And he, he now his work has been misinterpreted and it's been analyzed uh, to, F, to, to up the, beyond uh, belief that the intertestal reliability of approaches that he produced were are excellent, but the validity is all over the map. And you know how that is. Standardizing and quality assuring clinicians is not something that is common. However, where you're going, I, I, I get it. Look, at the, at the time a surgery is necessary and absolutely necessary, they're the only game in town. And, and, and on average, it's a wonderful event from a musculoskeletal perspective. So if you look at why are, are there so many problems in musculoskeletal, why has the World Health Organization now named low back pain the number one chronic problem worldwide? Why is musculoskeletal as a whole number two? Why is this happening? Why is musculoskeletal now the number one versus three, depending on who he analyzes, uh, largest healthcare spend? It's because collectively the job isn't being done properly. And as far as I'm concerned, it's really simple. It's selection, right? It comes down to selection. So you ask for a solution. If, if we train primary care, how to better triage musculoskeletal, and we take conservative care clinicians and teach them to a standard of how to examine these patients and then quality assure everything around them. That's the solution. The problem is all you, you can imagine the barriers to implementation that range from training to ego to finance, et cetera, et cetera. So, so we have a solution, we implement it and, and we it's worked in, in, in the groups that we've, every organization we've implemented in it has been successful. The problem is, it's hard to get into these organizations because change is not easy. So clearly there's a solution that's available. It's right. not available to everybody in that, you know, there are certainly some people that are suffering specific conditions that, you know, best course of treatment 
includes surgery, intervention, and so forth. But for substantial numbers of patients that you're talking about, there is a better way. It's, yes. That's not the surgery that they're looking for. So clearly at this point, we need to provide access or at least understanding for individuals until we can get that filter problem fixed in the upstream case where people are being directed incorrectly. So at this point, is it down to the individual that they need to know and understand and access those resources? Yeah, I think you're absolutely correct. And, and so, so who are the groups you want to get to? You want to go direct to consumer and get the consumer to better understand this. And to that end, we've built an intuitive mobile app that we call JointStrong. And that, that app is out there for the individual seeking care. It helps them assess themselves. Great. Primary care, 60 to 70% of all musculoskeletal starts there. So who can, who can really create the change within that medical world? It's going to be primary care. And to that end, we've built a triage training program to try to facilitate that. Um, but 50% of all musculoskeletal cases can self-manage, but the other half need help. And at that point, I think that's where you really need to bring in these assessment processes that can help select patients better so that they're always in the right care bucket. So I, as I process that, I, I, you know, there's some technical solutions and app to sort of support the individual. Obviously, this is a complex area. It's, it's not something that I, as a, a general patient, can necessarily understand. But perhaps the question I need to be asking when I access my primary care or, you know, the resources that I'm going to is, are they considering alternative issues? How do I sort of assure myself that I'm, I'm at least covering all the bases? So... As a, as a consumer, it's very difficult at this point, right? Because we typically rely on our primary care doctor. And within medical school, musculoskeletal training could be, at least this is what I'm being told, when we go into these primary care residency programs and lecture, is that they are the least, this is the one medical domain in which they are the least prepared. And so primary care has access to the majority, and then they have to make a decision as to where these patients go. And their training is minimal. In, in, in that area. And so they tend to go on experience um, or whatever methodology that makes their, their day in life easier. So that's all I can tell you. So I can, to fix this primary care has to be better trained and conservative care has to be trained in some of these methodologies that I'm suggesting. So for, for the general patient that struggles with this, clearly um, understanding that this is an available option or a choice, making right. sure that that's available. Obviously, the longer term fix is to go back and fix it in the training part of this to allow for a different assessment. But in the intervening time, I think individuals need to be aware that they may have alternative options that don't include surgery, right. myself included, um, where uh, I, I avail myself of resources like yours, the app and so forth to, to maintain the best possible choices. Hopefully we're going to see more of that in the future. Well, would hope, right? It, and, and really with social media, there, there, there's, these, there, there's so many opportunities now that we can get this information out to the consumer. Now, whether they buy it or believe it is difficult. And, and frankly, the image is the problem, right? X-rays and MRIs and um, the lack of sensitivity. You know, I always make the joke that the MRI will pick up your grandmother's warts and 
if you continue to complain, there's somebody who wouldn't mind taking them out. It's just, it's just kind of the way it goes. And so the, the lay public has to move away from that disinformation because it, it's in, it's, the MRI can offer very incorrect information. Right. They've got to move to proper information. And the question is, how do you get them there? So the data's there. There are better alternatives or at least alternatives that are available that we need to understand and avail ourselves. Mark, thanks for joining me today. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for your interest. So that pain may not be coming from your hip. That hip replacement may not be in your future. We know hip replacements have been a positive revolution and one of the most common orthopedic operations that have brought about amazing results to millions of people. Working in orthopedics, it was a delight to bring patients in who were crippled with pain and witness the miracle transformation when they walked out no longer in pain. But not all painful hips require a hip replacement. As we heard, more than half of those patients are in pain not because of hip problems, but because of pain originating in another area. And these experiences are not confined to hips and extend to other joints and potential joint replacement surgery. So we should all ask ourselves, is this the right choice of care? Surgery of any type is not without risks. So making that selection should be done with as much certainty as possible. Screening out all other possible causes should be part of every assessment and needs to be integrated in, into every musculoskeletal area of care delivery. Your better pill to swallow is to take a long, hard look at the assessment process, either as the clinician or as the patient, and ask yourself, are we selecting and offering the right options to our patients? If this was your hip, or the shoulder of your mother, or the knee of your grandfather, are you certain that a replacement is the best available option? Have you explored all the possible causes before making an informed decision for a surgical intervention? It changed my personal trajectory, saving me from undergoing my own joint replacement, and it could change yours too. Thanks for joining me, your host, Dr. Nick, on this week's edition of Healthcare Upside Down. Until next week, keep solving the business of healthcare as if your life depended on it, as one day soon, it will. That's all the time we have for today. You can find all of our episodes on your favorite listening platform by searching for Healthcare Now Radio. Also, check out our blog at ecgmc.com hud for summaries and commentary from each episode. Follow our show's social hashtag, HCUpsideDown. And join us each week as we work to solve the business of healthcare for everyone.